1: Hello, my name is Avery Wyman, and I'm the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Israel Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Shai Haskani about his latest book, Dear Palestine, A Social History of the 1948 War, which he published with Stanford University Press in 2021. Dr. Haskani is an assistant professor of history and an assistant professor with the Joseph and Rebecca Meyerhoff Program and Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Maryland. earned his PhD in History and Judaic Studies from NYU, his master's from the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown, and his BA in Middle Eastern Studies from Tel Aviv University. His first book, Dear Palestine, provides a much-needed alternative perspective on the 1948 war between Israel and neighboring Arab states, unlike other more conventional histories of the war, which privileged the top-down perspective of elites in the state Ascani tells the story of the war from the bottom-up perspective of personal letters written by rank-and-file soldiers. In the ways that these regular people, who include both volunteers in the newly formed IDF and volunteers in the Arab Liberation Army, agreed with, rejected, doubted, mocked, substantiated, contradicted, and otherwise complicated the carefully packaged propaganda and indoctrination disseminated by the establishment, The voices of those who actually signed up to fight the war reveal that 1948 cannot be simplified into a neat set of binary outcomes. From this point of view, instead of ideological consensus, there is considerable ambivalence and dysfunction. Instead of triumphalist or tragic plotments found in the nationalist historiographies of the war, there is no clear victor or victim, but rather the shared human cost of consequences that reverberate long after the end of the war itself. And instead of the pernicious myth of an immutable antipathy between the Arab and the Jew, the perspective of Arabs and Jews reveals not two irreconcilable groups simply destined to fight, but people with similarly complex and shifting identities, politics, values, and humanity. And with that short introduction said, Professor Professor Azkani, it's a pleasure to be here with you today.
2: Hey, I'm glad to be here.
1: Perfect. So why don't we get started with a little bit of a background? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this subject?
2: Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm a a faculty member at the University of Maryland in College Park. uh, But my actual, probably you should call it, original career was in journalism. Um, To me, it seems so distant as, as if I was a a different person back there. Uh, But, you know, certainly it was a a major part of my life. Uh, For about seven years, I started um, as a West Bank uh, correspondent on Israeli radio and then um, spent a few years as a a correspondent covering the Israeli military on Israeli television. Um, I did this for about uh, seven years. Um, And towards, uh, I think... Let me think. I think it was uh, 2007, something like that, um, when I was working to produce a short sort of documentary piece um, for Channel 10. That's the name of the channel I was working uh, for. Um, Actually, not the most intriguing topic. It was about um, one of the uh, first uh, Israeli arms deal, Um, arms deal with um, West Germany. And the reason it was, um, and that it spiked my curiosity back then, was that um, this was a decade or so after uh, uh, the Holocaust, right? The extermination of European Jews. And um, this was very interesting to see um, how Israel uh, at the time tried to, well, sell to its own population White had to sell, these were mostly Uzi rifles, et cetera, uh, to um, West Germany. And I was um, there were some, some newly declassified documents um, that, that were published in the um, Israel Defense Forces Archives. That was the first time uh, I ever uh, visited that institution. And I was collecting some material to, to do like a, a short piece, 10 minutes or something like that, uh, that was supposed to be aired on Israeli television. And as I was sifting through documents, literally by um, coincidence, uh, I found uh, a very strange document, just a few lines, saying something along the lines of, we're all familiar with the uh, public perceptions of this deal as they are mirrored in the uh, Israeli press. However, and this is some low-ranking officer writing to his uh, superior, writing something along the line of, from the personal letters of Israeli soldiers, we can see, if I recall it correctly, that there is actually major opposition uh, to this arms deal. Um, And, 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 you know, uh, uh, another document was referenced in this short memo saying the views of the Israeli soldiers as they are uh, reflected in their letters would be summarized in in this document. And I was wondering, I I could not really figure out at the time or or make much sense of that cryptic sentence because I was not familiar with with what I later learned was a major uh, Big Brother apparatus that secretly copied uh, these Israeli soldiers' letters. Um, but you know, as a as a good journalist, or I don't know if I was good, but you know, as a journalist, I I started you know bugging the archives and saying you know I want to see these documents. What are these reports that summarize uh, those soldiers' letters? And it certainly took um, um, well a few months for the first batch, and then a, a decade for for the entirety of this source. Um, but eventually, they were willing to declassify some of those. And um, I found really uh, what I felt was a real uh, treasure trove there uh, in the archives. I remember um, one of the first um, letters that I saw in those, and we can talk more about that source in a little bit, but in those um, intercepted uh, 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 reports or in those intercepted letters was one by a soldier that may have been sent to blow up uh, uh, Palestinians, uh, Palestinian villages that were depopulated by Israeli forces during the 48th War. And I remember reading his um, reflections, um, you know, going to that village and and wandering around the, the houses, the now emptied houses. And I, I remember it was a really sort of um, left a really strong impression on me. He said something along the lines of, you know, we were always taught that we... You know, um, um, we got this country because we, we loved the land more. But now, as I wander around these houses, I understand that this was a, some sort of a, a fabrication. And obviously, these are not the words that he used. And he says, you know, I I walk in these houses and I can see and feel that people had lived here, loved and hated, etc. And he actually wonders where they were um, at that time that he was writing. And I remember reading that letter and and really feeling that, wow, that tells a story that I'm not familiar with. Um, And, you know, it it took a few months and and I collected those letters, eventually um, decided to leave uh, my uh, career as a journalist and pursue one uh, in academia, first my, my master's and then my Ph.D., which were in some ways uh, both devoted uh, to to the study of those letters. later found letters by Arab volunteers and by Palestinians and others. And um, hopefully we'll we'll have some time to to get into those as well.
1: Yeah, it's interesting then that you were in the midst really of your first career then when this project really seems like it equally as much found you, that you were researching something not exactly related, but then you came across this genuine treasure trove of just a completely different perspective on Israeli and Palestinian history. And so my question then is about about this kind of trajectory of training, of having gone from a career in media and journalism to then making the turn to academia. And so your formal training is actually in both Jewish studies and in Middle Eastern studies. And so I was curious how having a finger on the pulse of both of these fields concurrently shaped how you thought about this project, and perhaps you can explain to the audience how having training in both of these fields sets you apart from previous generations of scholars who've also looked at
2: 1948. Sure. Um, so I, I originally come from the field of Middle Eastern studies. And as a, as a journalist, um, it's, it's funny because it's only recently that I've started sort of thinking back to that time and sort of owning up to that period. Because as you know, in, in academic life, some see um, a previous career in journalism as very positives, Other uh, uh, may not. And so it's it's only recently that I've sort of started to say, oh, actually I've had that different life before uh, academic life that that I did something very, very different. And as I was uh, still a reporter uh, for Israeli news, um, um, and I thought I'll, I'll be doing that for, you know, the foreseeable future. I also, was attending um, uh, Tel Aviv University and did my undergraduate BA in Middle Eastern history. And so I really came in some way from from that uh, perspective of Middle Eastern studies. But of course, in Israel, for complicated political reasons that we may not have the time to go into, in the study of the modern Middle East, Israel is not really studied. Um, And there's a whole department studying that. Um, And in fact, you know, you sort of, some of these issues are are discussed, you know, the conflict, but never Israel is a major player that shaped what we call the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's not really a a major topic of discussion. There are many other redeeming qualities for the um, higher education, the undergraduate education in Israel that one, uh, at least uh, in the early 2000s when I was there, was not one of them. And so I came um, um, into sort of or was introduced um, uh, to this um, whole issue through the prism of, um, of Middle Eastern studies, um, actually not studying or, or not academically engaging with Israel in a, a very significant way. Um, at some point, and you know, hopefully in, in a few decades, I'll, I'll I'll write that story. But I, I felt somewhat unease about um, uh, my work as a journalist. You know what I was telling on the news every evening, and and some of the larger uh, context in which I bring um, uh, those news, and as and you can. Just in terms of years, I was a correspondent um, from the beginning of the Second Intifada um, and covering the West Bank. This was a very intense time. And then later on, um, some of the wars uh, that Israel had waged uh, in Gaza and Lebanon um, and and elsewhere. Um, And that had, of course, a significant impact on me. Um, And that ultimately made me wonder um, whether the sort of Stories I call them stories, but but narratives that I presented um, every evening at that point uh, on the news um, were ones that I could really stand behind and, and feel that that I've done uh, a service that will be helpful to the viewers and others. Um, eventually, I decided that they did not, and uh, that was a, a major um, contributing factor to my decision to go. Um, and pursue sort of academic studies um, in the United States, um, and my choice of of the place to go and study was also, at least in 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 Israel, was seen uh, as peculiar. I decided to go to Georgetown's uh, Arab Studies program, um, which was as as it was described at the time, sort of. Left of Marks or something like that. Um, and, and I did that, of course, knowingly. And, and that was an amazing, amazing experience because really for the first time, I um, met and discussed and and saw and learned from so many different people from throughout the Middle East, right, um, that I have not met or talked or learned from uh, before. And that was a really sort of fundamental uh, experience for me um, in um, 2008 when I started that program. Um, as I was um, at some point um, t- towards the conclusion of that two years um, master's, I decided that I uh, wanted to pursue uh, a PhD um, in, in history. And um had all sorts of ideas and thoughts on how to pursue that PhD. And, and I'm sure you're, you're well aware uh, of the way that works in the sense that oftentimes those decisions are, are made based on, you know, where are the best funding sources? Where would I be able to eventually acquire a, a job, etc. Um And I literally applied across the board. I knew that I was working on, um, in in some fundamental ways on the modern state of Israel and, of course, uh, historical Arab-Palestine. And I knew that that topic can be studied from within Middle Eastern studies, but also from within Jewish studies. And so I applied everywhere. Um, And I was very, very lucky. um, At the time, a new sort of field was emerging at uh, New York University, um, where um, people that were interested in straddling both these worlds um, were, 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 um, accepted and and some of my cohort have, have done very, very similar work. Um, and I was very, very fortunate to be able to be admitted, uh, to New York university where I, um, I did my PhD.
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I'm curious then it's, um, It's not unusual is not the word that I'm looking for, but it is at least unique that you do have dual training in Middle Eastern studies, which obviously introduced you to content that is not necessarily familiar to earlier waves of historiography about Israel, but also methodologies that are unique or that are more specific to Middle Eastern studies than they were to Jewish studies at the time. And so then my related question is that this is also a a social history of 1948, which is something that I think takes a lot from strong currents in Middle Eastern studies, the idea of doing history from below, the idea of counteracting the perspective just of notables or elites. And so can you explain to the audience what exactly a social history is, perhaps in terms of the methodologies and the goals of the project, and how a social history is different from earlier nationalist or military histories of
2: 1948? Sure. So... uh, when I came into Georgetown uh, to pursue my master's in the Arab studies, that was really the first time that I was exposed to sort of um, uh, this amazing corpus of oral histories of the Nakba. And that that had a very significant influence on me. Um, you know, I had read some of those accounts of the Nakba by Israeli Jewish soldiers. But now I was really interested to see whether I could locate some of those letters um, from Palestinians, from other Arab volunteers, and that was a, a very lengthy process, but eventually I was able to locate them. And I thought of um, I thought that weaving them together to tell a story that sort of decenters centers the Bengurians and Amin al-Husseini's and Sharetz and all those uh, people of the world that are certainly part of this book, but, but are not the center, um, would be uh, what I was hoping would be an interesting and new way to, to study um, um, 1948. And of course, you know, that's nothing novel on my part. Social and cultural history and what is often referred to as history from below has been um, a, 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 a genre that has become popular um outside in the outside of Middle Eastern's history, in sort of the, the general field of history, with amazing, of course, works like the Cheese and the Worms and the Great Cat Massacre and so many of these uh, foundational works in history from below. And in, in recent years, as Middle East studies uh, evolved, and when I say recent, I mean in the recent 25 years, um, some of those trends have have come into uh, Middle East uh, studies as well, um, and to the study of of Palestine to a lesser degree of Israel as well. Although that's changing, with amazing work by Salim Tamari and, and James Gelvin and more recent work by Shirin Sikli and that really um, really opened up a uh, 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 sort of a lot of. Um, um, how would I frame this? I think that that was um, allowed sort of um, and, and gave me the opportunity to look at episodes that, you know, many people um, are familiar with, uh, but in, in new ways. And and I, I write in the book that I'm um, not as interested in, in what, quote unquote, really happened in 1948, but rather um, how people... Um, Jews and Arabs and Palestinians, male and female, how they conceived uh, of that reality, um, including um, their lies and deceptions and arrogance and celebration and violence and all these things that make up um, the the human experience, right? The experience of those um, non-elites that I am particularly interested in.
1: Awesome. I think with that, we can jump right into the book. So uh, before we start discussing the chapters and the parts of the books in greater detail, can you begin by just establishing the scope of the text? So who are we looking at? When are we looking at? And uh, what are some of the distinct subgroups that you want to make sure that readers are aware of?
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. So this book has, um, many different protagonists, um, you know, obviously, um, Uh, Jews and Palestinians, but Jews from all over the world, right? From DP camps and from Morocco and from the United States and from elsewhere. Um, and of course, Palestinians and also Arabs that are coming from around the world. And I think, um, and, and this was a, a major contribution of my amazing editor, um, at Stanford university, uh, press Kate wall, you know, when I, uh, initially pitched this idea to her, and it was based on my doctoral dissertation, Um, she said, this is super interesting. The way that it is currently written um, as part of my doctoral dissertation does not work. So um, we would potentially be interested, but you have to rewrite this as a story that brings together all these different ethnicities, nationalities, groups, in each of the chapters, and at the time, I was like, "Seriously, I mean that—that's like a lot of work." Um, but but I think um, Kate was ultimately um, correct, and and really had made this into a very different project that it has been. But something that I'm um, that I'm I'm very proud of. Um, and let me quickly try and walk you through that structure. Uh, that that um, 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 that Kate helped create, and in, in that eventually is what Dear Palestine is today. Um, so basically, the book is sort of um, uh, it has five chapters, and it's sort of a five um, part journey, right? It has these five distinct quote unquote stops uh, along the way, where we um, in the first chapter. Um, we actually look at these um, Zionist and Arab mobilizers that are working around the world to bring Jews and Arabs to Palestine. So first, there's mobilization uh, among, of course, um, uh, the Palestinian indigenous population and also um mostly immigrant Jews, but also Sabra-born Jews in Palestine itself, right? You need to get these people to fight. And I look at some of the themes and ideas that are used to mobilize them. And I also show um, um, that while the Haganah mobilization campaign was extremely successful, um, the Palestinian mobilization campaign was not very successful, and I show some of the reasons of of why and how that happens. But uh, Palestine aside, this was a significant transnational mobilization effort that brought people from all sorts of of places. So I look at the mobilization of um, all these societies and parties and tribes that came to be affiliated with um, a volunteer army, the Arab Liberation Army, as it's called. It was uh, um, overseen by the Arab League. um, And in the early parts of the war, all sorts of organizations affiliated to it were bringing over volunteers. And so I look at Syria and in Iraq and Lebanon. Each of these places have some really interesting themes on how you convince those populations there to come and fight In Palestine, a place most of them have not been to and, you know, were, of course, familiar with it in the context of of Pan-Arab nationalism, but may have not actually uh, uh, were acquainted with the realities on the ground. So I look look at those places for the Arab world, but then for the quote-unquote Jewish world, I actually try to talk about this idea that I call Pan-Judaism, right? So we're all familiar with Pan-Arabism, but in 1948... Um, this there's a major mobilization campaign around the Jewish world to bring fighters, Jewish fighters, to Palestine, and so I look at these DP camps, right, the places where uh, Holocaust survivors are um, concentrated by the Allies in the aftermath of the Second World War, and it's it's actually. It's, it's, it's a difficult and, and somewhat painful story to see how the Zionist leadership at the time is convincing, sometimes using um, somewhat of a coercion, uh, those Holocaust survivors to come and fight in Palestine. Many may have been uh, excited about Zionism and, and the idea of immigrating to, to the land of Israel and, and later the state of Israel, but apparently not many were excited to go and fight very shortly after the Nazi extermination campaign. So I look at, at uh, Holocaust um, 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 survivors and I look at, at Moroccan Jews and we'll, maybe we'll talk more about them, how they were mobilized to come and fight in '48, And even at American Jews, right? Um, several hundred of them ended up in Palestine um, um about 1,500 or so in total uh, during the war. So that's the first chapter, looking at the mobilization. And then the mo- The book moves on to the second chapter that looks at the socialization of those Jews and Arabs who ended up in Palestine, Um, um sort of uh, their socialization or indoctrination or whatever you call it, you call it about um, what is going on in Palestine. So you know, they're brought over to, to Palestine or um, later the state of Israel. Um, and the armies, right, both the Haganah and later the Israel Defense Force and the Arab Liberation Army have these plans in place to explain to these people, who is the enemy? What do you do to her or him? Um, You know, what are some of the underlying... Ideas that bring together these armies. And so the second chapter looks at some of those themes for both um, the Jewish uh, Armed Forces and this volunteer Arab army. And then in the third chapter, that's where I really move and shift into looking uh, at the letters. Um, And that's uh, chapter, I really like the title of that chapter. It's called, Welcome to Palestine, What Brings You Here?, and the idea is, is that through these personal narratives and personal letters, some of those Jews and Arabs who made it to Palestine um, from the outside uh, narrate what being in Palestine, right, touching the, 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 the land in Palestine, what that actually meant for them um, as they're introduced to this uh, uh, landscape for the first time. Uh, the fourth chapter looks at violence, obviously, not not very surprising, but but some of the ideas and reflections uh, that both um, 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 uh, inflicting violence and suffering violence made uh, Palestinians and Jews and Arab volunteers what that made them uh, think about how they conceived of um, certain, uh, episodes and, and vignettes from the war um, in the context of, of the use of violence. So we, we see um, some discussions that we may be able to, to get into later on about uh, the question of, of Judaism or Jewish tradition and violence. And we also see Palestinians um, um, in places like Haifa and Na'aka or Acre and elsewhere that are being driven out of their homes uh, and are narrating that experience or telling about that experience in their personal letters in real time. And then the fifth and last chapter is sort of the, the, um, the reflection in the aftermath of the war, right? So we have here a, a creation of, of, a, of what is described by uh, the protagonist as, as a Jewish state, um, what that meant to them. Um, and the erasure of Arab Palestine. And so that last chapter really looks at um, Palestinians reflecting on the erasure of Arab Palestine, on this grassroots uh, movement of, of return that actually starts in the immediate aftermath of the, of the war itself. And on the Jewish side, right, uh, celebrations, of course, we were familiar with those narratives but also some dissent, right? Um, certainly the dissent was not um, the, the most uh, popular of the voices or, or the most widespread of the voices, but we also see some important and interesting dissent, uh, primarily among American Jewish volunteers. Some of them have taken very difficult um, um, or, or have, take, have, have seen uh, the war and its aftermath very negatively, and also among uh, Moroccan Jews uh, that hopefully we'll, we'll get to speak more about later on. So these are sort of the five-part um, five journey that I hope uh, that the readers, um, or at least some of those um, uh, readers that will read the, the whole thing, will will follow um, um, in, in Dear Palestine.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: That was an excellent roadmap really to all of the, the main parts of the book that's really helpful for all of us as we try and Chart our way through the territory of the text. And uh, I want to return then to the first two chapters, which is where you really focus on top-down perspective, on the perspective from these organizations, from the establishment and also from elite actors. And in these two chapters, as you mentioned, you're focusing on mobilization efforts and then later on indoctrination efforts. And I think for me, two really interesting um, insights emerged as I was reading. The first of which is that these organizations were very aware that they needed to adapt their messaging depending on their specific audience. And so you see the IDF will change its message of mobilization depending on if they're talking to Jews from Morocco or Anglophone Jews from the United Kingdom or from the United States. And you see a similar trend amongst uh, Arab liberation army volunteers if they're aiming at an audience that is perhaps in Syria or an audience that is in Iraq. And so I was wondering if you could unpack for us some of the key differences between the mobilization efforts, which largely took place outside of Palestine, and then the indoctrination efforts, which took place inside of Palestine, how these messages changed, and why perhaps the elite or the top-down decided to change these messaging when they were considering um, the implications, perhaps, of some of the messages that they were trying to disseminate to their recruits.
2: Sure. Let me start with the Arab Liberation Army, actually. So this was a volunteer army of about 5,000 people that ended up fighting in Palestine um, from very early in 1948 until roughly late 1948 when its forces were driven out. And it was a creation of the Arab League. It was actually one of the first executive decisions of the Arab League to form this volunteer army. Um, but we're, of course, familiar with the history of uh, the modern states in, in the Middle East, their creation and, and the first sort of regimes that um, um, control these countries uh, after independence. And we, we are very familiar with the strong um, involvement or fusion, even if, you, uh, if you'd like, uh, uh, of these regimes with colonial forces, primarily the British and, for, and French. And so we won't go too much right now into why this uh, uh, volunteer army was created, but the decision is, is made in late forty seven to create this um, volunteer army. But what happens then is that there's this really fascinating explosion of organization throughout the Middle East. And unfortunately, I didn't have uh, the space to really capture all of that. But it's a major um, attempt to mobilize Arabs throughout uh, the Arab world. But here, it's really sort of completely separated from the leaders of Arab states and those who actually had ended up commanding this Arab Liberation Army. So you have all these Parties and tribes and small associations, all with their own very different agendas, trying to recruit and mobilize young Arab men to come fight in Palestine. So you have a revolutionary movement like the Ba'ath, right? Uh, the resurrection, that's how the, the word translates, in Syria. It's a newly formed party at that point, and it really has a revolutionary platform where it says we need to get rid of what they call internal colonialism, reshuffle the entire Arab world and create truly nationalist um, um, uh, regimes, right? And and of course, much of their critique is at, at, at Shukri al-Kawalti, the, the Syrian president at the time. And they're successful to a degree. We don't know exactly how successful, but they're successful in bringing in recruiting those young men to go fight in Palestine. But then, both in Syria and in Lebanon, you have um, some, some of these tribal leaders, uh, uh, the Al-Assad family from Jab Amil in in Lebanon, and some Druze-affiliated tribes or clans from uh, Mount Druze in, in Syria, and many of these are uh, have worked with the Zionists for many years, including by selling land to the Zionists. But there, we're also seeing them in 1948 mobilizing young uh, men, young Shia men, young Druze, uh, to come and fight in Palestine. Um, and we don't exactly know why. One one reason that I suggest in the book is that they wanted sort of to to um, uh, help uh, um, sort of. Um, they wanted to 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 recreate their, rep- their reputation and 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 maybe um, um, you know brand themselves as these nationalist leaders, and so you have all these very these are just two examples all these very different organization working to mobilize volunteers, but then when these people actually come to Palestine, uh, the leadership of the uh, Arab Liberation Army um, under Fawzi al-Qawuqji, who is the commander of the army, but also has all these Heads of Arab states sort of pulling strings or or pressuring him and, and, and basically overseeing the activity of the army. They have a problem on their hand. They're not interested in the kind of these Ba'afi revolutionaries who want to basically do away with the current state structures in the Middle East. And so from a, a relatively radical discourse of mobilization in Arab states, when we actually um, get to Palestine and, and see how these volunteers are are taught and indoctrinated and, and how are some of the themes of who is the enemy and etc. are discussed, we actually see uh, a significant pulling back from the radical uh, discourse. And so that's um, the difference um, on, on the Arab side between that mobilization, propaganda, and the actual um, um, uh, indoctrination or socialization upon coming to Palestine we see something that has some parallels but is not completely similar on the Jewish side. So certainly there are tailored messages um, in the sort of Zionist organization and later the Haganah and the Israeli Defense Forces to mobilizing Jews around the world in 1948. But since this is a much more centralized mobilization, um, there are themes that either are... um, um, very pervasive in in all sorts of places, or at least they're they're not as as different than um, from one another in 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 some in some broad uh, terms. But you know there are tailored messages. So in in the uh, DP camps, we see um, youth movements uh, associated with Zionist organizations saying something along the lines of, um, you know, uh, the Holocaust had just ended, but a second Holocaust is. Um, is is starting in Palestine. And so that is why you, Holocaust survivors have to come and fight um, for your Jewish uh, brothers and sisters in, in Palestine. Um, and, and I talk a little bit about the, the, the difficulties and, and issues with that sort of theme and And you know it certainly was appealing for some, but others insisted that after the conclusion of the second world war, they're not going to to fight right right now in Palestine, whether or not they saw themselves uh, as zionist and and here we see that Israel, for example, is initiating this um very very um, um bold peculiar and and saddening move where it says that those Holocaust survivors are de facto Israeli citizens and therefore have to enlist uh, into the Israeli army and how successful or unsuccessful that um, um, you can um, read in in the chapter on the mobilization. But that's in in DP camps. And then if you look at um, places like Morocco, of course, um, um, where the largest um, uh, population of Jews lived in the Middle East, right, 250,000 Jews, um, uh, the mobilization there was of a limited scale, uh, but was very, very interesting because in Morocco, um, Jews fared much, much better than they did elsewhere in the um, Arab world. And, and we could talk more about that, um, where, of course, the, the, the Sultan. Muhammad um, V was sort of a, a revered figure by the Jews of Morocco. And so we see that the themes used for mobilization there are somewhat different, trying to really um, target um, uh, uh, Francophile Jews um, by sort of appealing to some ideas that may uh, be familiar uh, to them, as uh, including the French Revolution and fighting for freedom and, and all sorts of things like that. And in the United States, again, relatively limited mobilization, uh, but a very interesting one that tries to tie together some of the American grand narrative with fighting to Israel. And so um, I I look at some some mobilization uh, materials distributed in the United States, um, um, like pamphlets or or newspapers produced by the um, IDF and the Haganah, where they have themes uh, where they talk, for example, of uh, um, a Jewish officer, an American Jewish officer who was killed uh, during the early parts of the war. And you have that line uh, saying something along the line, you know, he, um, in, in dying uh, for Palestine, he died for America. And we, we look at some of the ways on, in which uh, that sort of discourse Uh, may have been appealing or or may have not been uh, as appealing for uh, American Jews. Um, And then um, here we actually see an even greater shift in the socialization and indoctrination of soldiers once they actually make it to Palestine. Um, And and this was a very uh, interesting shift where Upon coming to to Palestine, the the IDF education apparatus, by the way, a massive apparatus of hundreds of um, um, education sergeants and and a large number of officers, all seen as politically reliable, tries to socialize those Jews and also Jews from Palestine into the war by explaining them who is the enemy. what needs to be done to her and him? And here we actually see some some. Um, when I was uh, first reading this, I felt was was quite uh, shocking. Um, um, uh, elections by these education officers, and so the the Arabs, both of Palestine's and the surrounding Arab armies, are um, often presented as descendants of the seven nations of Canaan and the Amalekites. Which, of course, uh, the the Bible instructs to to eliminate from the land of Canaan, and 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 the way that um, those biblical stories are brought in is by is is, is in order to sort of um, make the point that Jewish tradition, whatever that may be, in Morocco, in the United States, and DP campus, etc., does not negate or does not see negatively the use of collective violence by Jews in the context of the national era. And that is a really important message that the education officers are interested in in propagating uh, throughout the war. And later on, I I try to uh, talk a little bit about the way ordinary women and men, what what sense they made of these ideas.
1: The malleability is just really fascinating. This uh, kind of malleable messaging, to use an alliteration here, where uh, you see really palpable, really distinct differences then between messaging as it pertains to when it takes place in different areas, when it takes place regarding different audiences, when there are different purposes for this messaging. I mean, we've covered just now in this short little section of our conversation that you know, inside Palestine, outside Palestine, you see for instance, from the the Arab nationalist perspective, a really different take on the role of anti-imperialism and the limits of radicalism. When it is useful to mobilize soldiers outside of Palestine, it's really useful, right? It's really useful to bring people to the cause. But then when these soldiers make it to the military arena, when they start to actually train to be able to do violence, you see a real hesitancy amongst the, the elites that justifiably they should be worried that these soldiers will take this radicalism and redirect it back towards Arab states who at the time are still very much indebted in a lot of ways to European imperial power. And I think you point out also that from the Jewish perspective, you see a really, really interesting trend in discourses of violence and justifying doing violence against the quote unquote enemy. I mean, you provide really, really, like you said, chilling and shocking examples from a lot of these education apparatuses from some of the more famous kind of poet leaders of the day, people like Abba Kofner, who use discourses and languages of religious violence, of um, justification of Jewish violence that takes very heavily from religious precedent that we would associate much more often with the revisionist Zionist right and with Jewish vitalism. But here you see is very much part of the mainstream of um, of the top-down apparatus of the elite and of the army. And uh, that's kind of the top down, that's the establishment, and I wanna make sure that we get to the meat and potatoes of the book, which are these soldiers' personal letters, which as you mentioned earlier, we really start to discuss in chapter three to the end of the text. But before we discuss the letters in detail and some of the key themes that come across from a close read of them, I wanna take the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the sources in general. So to write the bottom up perspective of this book, you were obviously relying on soldiers' letters. Can you paint a picture for me? If I were to go to the same archives that you did and pull a single letter for myself, what would the piece of paper that I get actually look like?
2: That's that's a, a great question and, and something that I both um, you know was interested in in actually my archival work and also in sort of thinking about those sources and the limitations that they have. Right. So um, we, we didn't go into that, but maybe uh, I'll, I'll give a very brief uh, presentation of, of that unit that secretly intercepted many of those letters. Uh, it was called the Postal Censorship Bureau, and like many institutions that ended up uh, being part of the Israeli state, it is a British organ uh, established in uh, World War II, where the um, um, With, of course, the the official um, um, reason for its establishment was to sort of make sure that military secrets do not pass to enemy lines during the war. But uh, already the British, and they were not the first to do so, have used those uh, personal letters that ended up either going through Palestine or sent from Palestine. There's a whole... Um, story there, but but uh, using those letters for uh, uh, some sort of a sociological research on those sending those letters. So not targeting of individuals, although that was certainly done as well, but saying some um, larger um, uh, or or providing some larger sociological evaluation of all sorts of groups. That well, first the British were interested in. And then uh, the Israelis, and this is not British inventions, the Germans, the Russians, and many, many others have done the same. And when Israel is established um, in uh, 1948, literally the British give the keys to this operation over to the Israelis. And what is very helpful here is that many of those uh, censors or examiners, that's how they're officially called, are actually Jewish, uh, the overwhelming majority of the staff in this uh, postal censorship bureau the british organ are jewish there are some palestinians as well but the overwhelming majority are jewish and so one of the um, higher ranking uh, um, uh, jews who are uh, um the who supervises or directs one of the branches of the palestine uh, censorship is appointed as the chief censor of israel in 1948 by ben gurion Uh, overseeing uh, both the media censorship, we're not going to talk about that, but also this pretty massive operation of postal censorship that existed in all sorts of incarnations from 1948 all the way to 2004. So uh, a very, very, very lengthy period. And many of the sources that I use uh, in the book are these um, reports, intelligence reports, that copied excerpts from personal letters of all sorts of groups, right? So the letters were delivered and may have been lost, or some of them have not been delivered because they were deemed too subversive. But the censors were also tasked with copying large chunks of those letters to these intelligence reports, um, for various groups. So we have one of those um, uh, reports uh, specifically looking at Jewish soldiers. We have another kind of report looking at Palestinian refugees and many, many, one looking at Moroccan Jews and many different uh, kinds of these reports. Um, And I also in the book include another cache of letters. These are actually handwritten letters in Arabic that were found either in compounds of the Arab Liberation Army or on the dead bodies of, of soldiers. And so these are the sources um, uh, that, that I use for, for the book. And the question um, that you asked was about the, some of the, um, um, maybe not concerns, but but limitations and, and issues that come up with, with using that kind of source. And, and they're significant, Right. Um, first of all, we know that, uh, let's look at the uh, Jewish soldiers, for example, um, they were familiar with the fact or they, they were They knew that someone else was reading their letters to remove uh, military secrets from them. And so whether or not, as they write their families and friends and their loved ones, whether um, they already sort of internalized that there was a watchful eye reading those letters. And that's one issue. Another issue is, of course, the selection process, right? The censors themselves decided which letters to include and which not in those reports. Um, And uh, sometimes we have uh, sort of the backstory. We know how many letters they saw and how representative was a certain view. But oftentimes we do not, especially for that the the period in which the book deals with the forty-eight period, where this was all new, um, often we don't know that, um, and so there's some significant limitations uh, of these sources, and you know, I I the, what I try to do is to sort of uh, in in I hope in a honest way say these are these problems, these are the issues that these sources hey these are these issues these sources have. I still believe it's an extremely valuable source that tells a story that I was not familiar with and I, I think uh, others may have not been familiar with as well. Um, but certainly, um, this kind of source have a lot of those methodological um, issues that come up when using it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could talk really all day about this source base because it is so fascinating. Unfortunately, that is probably a, a conversation that needs to be entirely on its own. But uh, I would be remiss not to mention that in order to access some of these letters that you needed to write the book, as you, you, t- you tuck this thread into the acknowledgments, but you do mention it explicitly, you had to file a legal appeal against the Shinbet, which is Israel's domestic intelligence agency, for those who might not know. And this legal appeal made it all the way to the Israeli Supreme Court. I find it kind of be a delightfully meta thing that in order to achieve the goal of telling a non-state centric, non-nationalist history of 1948, you literally had to sue the state. (laughs) And I know this is a subject near near and dear to your heart and that archival declassification in Israel is something that you've worked on for many years prior. But broadly speaking, what is the situation with the classification and reclassification of some Israeli archives? And why should readers care? And what are some of the subjects most in jeopardy of being? uh, redacted or perhaps reclassified in a way that makes it more difficult for scholars to study them.
2: Yeah. Um, it is one of the the topics that I'm mostly interested in. And, um, it's interesting because I, I think there's a change on the way that people perceive this. Um, you know, a decade ago when I was, you know, writing comments on proposed laws and regulations on archives and was telling this to people, um, Certainly, people within the immediate academic sphere were, were interested and supportive, but cert- others may have rolled their eyes as, like, oh my God, the archival regulation and policy, I mean, it could get more boring. But, and that's not actually something that I'm. Um, 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 Contributed much to, but I think that there is a growing sense of understanding, mostly by uh, work by NGOs in Israel, uh, uh, like Akhvot, who works a lot on declassification of documents pertaining to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so I think that their work and and perhaps some other work have um, really contributed to this growing realization that um, to tell. This story to tell any story, right? You really have to have those sources, and that the state is engaged in a, a, a very um, sustained effort to keep some of these sources uh, away from um, the general public and scholars. And of course, in this context, right, we really have to remember that the Palestinian archive, not in a in a in a specific form, but in an abstract sense is subsumed into the israeli archives right uh, some of it is in it, some of those uh, documents are in dear palestine but of course the overwhelming majority of those remain classified right the um, libraries and collections and, and that are uh, confiscated in 1948 and in 18 in 1982 in lebanon right the plo archive the orient house archives all these um uh, Archives, right? That are a major part of the Palestinian archives are in Israeli uh, position, um, Many of those are, are are remain classified. Now, I I have a you know it's a it's a the issue of, of archival declassification in Israel um, is is a, a major theme and an important one. Um, and certainly there have been efforts done by the state in the last decade and. Um, some of them I worked on, and others, uh, many other scholars have worked on, to, to reclassify materials that were, um, that were already uh, available to, to scholars. And um, I remember once uh, trying, and I know that many other scholars have done that as well, to, to follow some of the trail uh, that leads from the footnotes of the, you know, Benny Morris or Avi Schleim. Um, Tom Segev's books and try and actually locate some of those sources that are mentioned in the footnotes you often reach a dead end and I think that is part of the state's attempt to um, well conceal its past uh, for a more convenient one and, and that's something that the uh, former uh, Israeli state archivists have, have admitted as such uh, in a report he published a few years ago however I do want to emphasize, and that is immensely important to me, that there are a lot of sources out there and that they are available to scholars, right? For whatever reason, maybe the state haven't gotten to to finding them and reclassifying them and maybe maybe for a, a slew of other reasons, but there are a lot of sources out there that are, are, are waiting to be studied and examined and written about in the context of dissertations and books and articles. Because Israel, um, it has a very peculiar position on this issue of archives. On the one hand, it wants to present itself as uh, you know, an open society that you know, allows um, free examination of, of historical and other uh, documents um, um and that is based on a sort of a German archival model. On the other hand, of course, Israel have a lot of these secrets, right, that they wish to to, 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 to hide. And you know, what people often refer to as, a, as dark pasts. Um, and so and it has to straddle these both of these positions uh, at all times. That means that for scholars and the general public, there is still really a lot out there um, to, to be studied and examined and, and and unearthed, right? And yeah, you may need to to you know appeal and write letters and and hopefully uh, wage some some legal challenges and and hopefully more and more scholars do that. Um, but I, I really wanted to to, to emphasize uh, how many sources are still out there in all the languages that you can dream of uh, waiting to be uh, discussed and and written about
1: that's a significant point and i think this book is very much uh, evidence a testament of that of the kind of thing that one can accomplish with the source base that is accessible might be less than easy to get sources but that's kind of a standard across historical work anyway but there's much so the upshot for me across these different subgroups of letters that you you analyzed in Dear Palestine is that while the top-down messaging of pan-Judaic or pan-Arab quote-unquote duty, I think is that the word that you use, played some sort of role, equally as convincing or perhaps even more convincing were individuals' personal or familial obligations. More significant still is that these soldiers' letters showed that their thoughts were not all uniform messaging, like the top-down had hoped but rather that they were riddled with contradictions and with doubts. And we see this as it falls across the three themes in chapters three through five, which deal with motivations, the quote-unquote, you know, why are you here of of the decision to volunteer, with their reactions to the violence of the war, and then finally with the idea of return, or perhaps more accurately the refusal to return or the prevention of return after the war itself ends. And so I thought maybe we could trace these three themes through the specific case of Moroccan Jewry. And so to start, why might a Moroccan Jewish volunteer in the IDF have volunteered to join the IDF? And what did you find in the letters that substantiated this position?
2: Yeah, so um, the Moroccan story um, um, certainly is is different than the mobilization elsewhere um, in both in DP camps and in the United States. Um, Morocco, we won't go too much into Moroccan history, but Morocco is still a protectorate, a French protectorate at the time. Um, And there is um, about 20,000 or so Jews that um, immigrate from um, Morocco to Israel in 1948, 1949. About 1,000 of them or so are enlisted um, in the IDF. Um, There are not that many records uh, surviving uh, today of sort of contemporaneous records of this mobilization. And what I was able to um, locate is some documents in the French archives, uh, mostly of the French uh, intelligence and French police, sort of documenting some of those uh, mobilization efforts of Moroccan Jews. And so that's certainly a a story that we don't have uh, at least a a complete picture of from the side of the mobilization in Morocco itself. But we do have uh, some pamphlets and some discussions um, that are going on in Morocco and and, um, some some press reports and things like that. Um, And we see that there was um, all sorts of interesting appeals to uh, the Jews of Morocco and some of them um, were at least initially successful. So Morocco is one of the only places in the Arab world where in the mid 20th century this concept of vimy um, uh, this this status of Jews this this um, Islamic idea concept of of the status of Jews uh, in 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 Islamic lands that's uh, Morocco is one of the only places where that, Um, vimi status still um, exists and still carries some weight in the mid-20th century. Whereas in the rest of the Arab world, at that point, it's largely defunct. But in Morocco, that is the way uh, certainly the Moroccan uh, sultan referred to the Jews. um, And it's also the way that some Jews have conceived of themselves uh, and uh, their uh, relationship with the regime. And, you know, we we'll, we don't have the time, unfortunately, to, to really go into that, but I, I thought I, I'll, I'll mention it because when we actually look at the letters of Jews um, that arrive in Palestine and make that decision to go fight in an act of Jewish solidarity mostly, we see that some actually see this idea of Jews taking up arms in Palestine as the sort of final and, and glorious abrogation of, of this Vimy status um, in Morocco itself. And certainly some are very, very excited about those prospects of Jews um, sort of um, flipping the, the, the power relations. Um, you have, we have one uh, female uh, relative of a soldier writing, You know, the Arabs used to walk up with their heads held high, and we, in humility, referring to this Vimy status, I think. Uh, but now things have changed. And, and certainly there was excitement about those, this prospect. Um, but then um, the Israeli reality, right, of uh, 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 um, a settler colonial movement, right, among other things, in uh, Palestine um, with a very, very clear sort of ethnic and race-based stratification is is apparent to those immigrants, right? They they suffer racism and really um, just horrifying uh, racism that is that is very apparent to them shortly after coming, and that um, over the time span of the war really causes them to rethink. Um, whatever their adherence to Zionism may have meant, and their place within that, that newly conceived idea. Um, some, have, have, um, the, some some decide to sort of basically turn their back on that idea. Some decide that they need to, to fight it, to fight within the system to make something else, something better of Zionism. Um, and, and we see, and here we actually do have, very detailed uh, statistics relatively of that Postal Censorship Bureau that shows that 70% of those Moroccans inside the IDF and about 60% of all Moroccans in Israel, based on their personal letters, wanted to leave Israel and return to Morocco at the conclusion of the 1948 war because of racism uh, that um, uh, by the Ashkenazi um, majority population at the time against them and we really see what sort of how that makes them um uh, reconceive and, and rethink of some of their experience during the war um not all of them certainly but but uh, I think uh, a significant uh, um uh, a significant population within those Moroccans and one of my favorite letters um is by this Moroccan soldier uh in the immediate aftermath of the war saying something along the lines of um you know, the, the, the Arabs are our brothers, not the Ashkenazi Jews. And now I have come to realize it and sort of saying that he needs to go back to Morocco eventually, immediately because that's where the future of Moroccan Jews um, is. And so, so that's a very interesting population that goes to a, through a significant transformation uh, during the time span of the war because of what they experience on the ground in Palestine.
1: Yeah, to pick up on that thread that you've actually just explained, it's interesting that in terms of mobilization, in terms of motivation for Moroccan Jews, this uh, idea of throwing off Dimitr, of throwing off kind of this hierarchy that existed in um, the Middle East and North Africa in this structure was really useful as a a motivation. But then over the course of the war itself and specifically with the discourse of violence, we see that Moroccan Jews are chastised often by the top down for their lack of zeal, for for their lack of really um indulgence for trying to go to war with these quote unquote Arab enemy that we see that that is actually not borne out by the texts. And so then with specific regards to the discourses of violence, this is something we see for Moroccan Jews, but also something that we see across the board for all of the groups that you study. We see that Jews are broadly considering that the price of being, quote, like all of the other nations, this normalization project is perhaps too high for the precedent of Jewish morality that came before it. And similarly, for arab Liberation Army volunteers, what you don't see, but is significant in its absence, is that you don't see a lot of kind of... um, jihadist or really zealous uh, religiously motivated violence against Jews that is not borne out in the text. It's far more common to see anti-imperial and anti-colonial reasoning. Um, I wish we had more time to go into the violence in general, but I do want to stick to this kind of Moroccan Jewish through line that we're working on. And perhaps we can discuss then what happens after the war and this idea of return. So you spend a lot of time on the Moroccan Jewish case on how the censorship apparatus played a role in preventing Moroccan Jewish return. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit for us.
2: Sure. Um, so in, in the case of Moroccan Jews um, um, who, who came to Palestine to fight or to Israel, one of the first things that Israel has done is to confiscate their passports, uh, essentially making it extremely difficult, almost impossible to, to go back to Morocco. Um, and of course, the uh, Morocco, uh, the, the French protectorate, um, Moroccan state had its own qualms about whether or not to allow those Jews who had just fought for uh, Israel be repatriated into, uh, into Morocco. And so these are just on the sort of the, the broad context, historical context that are taking place. Um, at the same time. Now, eventually, we see about 6% or so of those Moroccan Jews who came to Israel go back to Morocco. And I actually um, uh, speculate that numbers would have been much, much higher if it has not been as logistically uh, complicated, almost impossible, to initiate this uh, process of a return to Morocco. And so this, um, the, the book ends with this story of them attempting to return and that the return is extremely difficult or almost impossible. Um, my next research project uh, looks at that period from when the war ends all the way to the late 50s and the Wadi Salib revolt, right? We, because, of course, most uh, not only that most Moroccan Jews stayed in Israel, then we see a major massive wave of immigration from Morocco to Israel throughout the 1950s and sort of the, the attempt to reshape new rules of the game, as I call it, within Israel itself, um, attempt to fight racism from within, right? When, it, when, when that idea of returning to Morocco is no longer possible. First, it's no longer possible because actual return was so difficult. After 1956, with Moroccan independence, um, in the view of most of these Moroccan Jews, Uh, Morocco um, stopped being uh, a a meaningful alternative for them. And so um, many of them focus on fighting inside Israel, fighting against racism inside Israel in the sort of very, very uh, complicated and interesting and bold uh, um, um, process that that happens throughout the 1950s.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, we would also be remiss not to mention that the Israeli censorship apparatus is playing an integral role here in stymieing or frustrating Moroccan attempts to return to Morocco after the war ends. But perhaps more significantly, the censorship censorship apparatus plays a large role in preventing Palestinian return to Israel. So I'm wondering if you can uh, quickly explain how the censorship apparatus and how using, creating a literal map by charting the, uh, the movement of these letters Uh, played a role in preventing Palestinian return after the Nakba, after 1948.
2: Yeah, and I think there are some really interesting um, uh, crossovers and parallels between this attempt of Moroccans to go back to Morocco and the attempts of Palestinians to go back to Palestine, right? We see that in the immediate, immediate aftermath of the war. Um, And these these are just really sad letters that we see are intercepted by Israel, are sent from these newly created refugee camps around Israel, right, where Palestinians are housed in the immediate aftermath of the Nakba. Um, and here, the postal censorship play a, a central and very violent role in making sure that that return doesn't happen. And that uh, role has all sorts of layers. First of all, it uses those personal letters to identify land and property owned by Palestinians so it can be expropriated inside Israel. Then um, those uh, personal letters of the Palestinian refugees sending letters to their families who became Israeli citizens is used to track routes that are being used by Palestinians as they try to smuggle the border back into Israel. Um, and those roots discovered in letters are then often used to, to ambush these returnees, um, reprehend them, and, and even kill them. Uh, and we see um, from 1949 uh, into the mid-50s, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of Palestinians that are being killed as they try to secretly uh, return and reunite with their families inside Israel and censorship um, has a role in that story as well.
1: Yeah, it's a, a fascinating and harrowing dimension of the role that the press censor played in this history of 1948 and the immediate aftermath of 1948. The last um, question that I wanna ask or the last idea that I wanna touch on is more abstract. It's more big pic- big picture question, if you will. And so from your equal attention to both the context of Zionism and the context of Arab nationalism in the book, What I think is a really important argument emerges clearly, and it's one that you make explicit note of yourself in the introduction. So in your discussion of the rise of militarism and of scouting movements, you point out that Zionist discourses of militarism, masculinity, nationalism, religious revival, etc. are remarkably similar to Arab nationalist discourses on these same subjects and emerged at roughly the same time. So to underscore this point, I'm going to read a quick quote from page four that you wrote, um, younger generations of European Jews and the Arabs that came of age in the shadow of the Ottoman Empire's dissolution internalized the racist European gaze and envisioned similar solutions to combat it. Shortly thereafter, you give us some tangible evidence by pointing out how the proliferation of Zionist and Arab nationalist scouting groups are evidence of this and that they both came came about in the interwar period. I think it's possible, then, to argue that Zionism and Arab nationalism were similar responses to what we can broadly call a shared encounter with European racism, or perhaps even more broadly with European quote-unquote modernity. Uh, We see this in how both discourses deal with anxieties over backwardness, pejorative associations with femininity, biological racism, which for Jews we can just specifically call anti-Semitism, and a mutual desire to normalize their respective populations as contenders in the arena of nation states as measured against the values of imperial, um, imperial European powers. So to put it in really simple terms, Zionism and Arab nationalism are really two like movements responding to a shared moment and are more similar in form than they are different. Is this something that you were trying to argue explicitly? And did this argument shape your decision to structure the book in a manner that that presents the voices of Jews and Arabs in tandem, as opposed to in segregation?
2: Yeah, uh, thank you um, for this this question. Uh, Yes, this was something um, that was not apparent to me straight away, certainly not when I was writing my dissertation, but uh, as I was wrapping up the book, um, you know, obviously, there's the letters and there's the mobilization and indoctrination, but there must have been right some larger structures and, and worlds of meanings that were important uh, to those young women and men that ended up in Palestine, uh, either during the war or before the war or the, the, those Palestinian indigenous population. Now I realized that within the, the span of a book, there's only so much of that larger worlds of meanings that, that I was that I would be able to discuss. But I did feel that this theme of militarism and, and impaired masculinity um, was really sort of screaming out, or at least that's how I felt, uh, from uh, the letters, but also from the, the some of the propaganda efforts. Um, and this is something that, again, this was probably the last thing I've, I've written uh, in this book. I, I did find uh, or, or thought that there were some really significant parallels in the evolution of, of Zionism and Arab nationalism throughout, uh, specifically uh, with those scouting movement uh, that, that really... Uh, begged to be framed in a in a in a framework uh, that that brought them together. Now that is not to say that there were no power imbalances, that this is the same story. No, I, I say very explicitly that Zionism needs to be understood in its national context and in its settler colonial context and that Arab nationalism has um, certainly um, uh, some, some parallels with that, but there's a very different story of European imperialism um, um, it, that, that contributes to a specific evolution in, um, in the Middle East and the Arab Middle East. Still, I thought that this larger story of, of militarism and, and, yeah, in, in some ways, um, modernity is an important one to be told As sort of um, in in a sort of in a comprehensive way, together uh, of Zionism and Arab nationalism, um, maybe that's the the small contribution that my own personal academic trajectory in both Middle Eastern and Jewish studies has sort of um, um, allowed me to 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 argue. And I'm sure many um, would would not find that convincing. That's fine as well, but that's that was my my view and my uh, my two cents on on that particular issue.
1: Yeah, analyzing this togetherness, this kind of shared response is to me, I, I'm very much in agreement. A really exciting frontier for Israel-Palestine studies as perhaps a version of an area studies in which this isn't something that can be um, segregated or divided into two binary national historiographies, but something that needs to be looked at as. A shirt moment as similar responses by people facing similar challenges. And we should also note that this um, this idea of analyzing the foundational roots of European Orientalism and European anti Semitism still retains an air of novelty and perhaps even of a little bit of radicalism, but isn't necessarily new. Uh, Edward Said wrote about this in Orientalism decades ago now, but for some reason it still remains something that scholars in Israel studies, Jewish studies, and Middle Eastern studies alike are slow to pick up on. I think that you're right, and I very much hope that this will become kind of a new frontier for emerging scholarship as the field continues to develop and grow. So before we wrap up, I want to make sure that we've covered everything you want to talk about. So before we conclude, is there anything that we didn't get the chance to discuss that you want to make sure that readers are aware of or that they know about the book?
2: I think we covered most of the things, um, and hopefully we'll we'll get the opportunity to to chat again in the future about this and, and other projects. But no, I'm I'm very happy.
1: Okay, perfect. Well with that, thank you so much for your time, Professor Haskani, and uh, thanks for chatting with us today.